This morning we will read from 1 Samuel chapter 3, and then the sermon text will be Luke 2, 41 through 52, 1 Samuel 3, Luke 2, 41. First Samuel chapter 3, hear now the reading of God's most holy word. Now the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli, and the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. At that time, Eli, whose eyesight had begun to grow dim so that he could not see, was lying down in his own place. The lamp of God had not yet gone out, and Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord where the ark of God was. Then the Lord called Samuel, and he said, Here I am, and ran to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. But he said, I did not call, lie down again. So he went and lay down. And the Lord called again, Samuel, and Samuel arose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. But he said, I did not call my son, lie down again, verse 7. Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord, and the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. Verse 8, And the Lord called Samuel again the third time, and he arose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. Then Eli perceived that the Lord was calling the boy. Therefore Eli said to Samuel, Go, lie down, and if he calls you, you shall say, Speak, Lord, for your servant hears. So Samuel went and lay down in his place. And the Lord came and stood, calling as at other times, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel said, Speak, for your servant hears. Then the Lord said to Samuel, Behold, I am about to do a thing in Israel at which the two ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. On that day I will fulfill against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his house from beginning to end. And I declare to him that I am about to punish his house forever for the iniquity that he knew, because his sons were blaspheming God, and he did not restrain them. Verse 14, Therefore I swear to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. Samuel lay until morning. Then he opened the doors of the house of the Lord. And Samuel was afraid to tell the vision to Eli. But Eli called Samuel and said, Samuel, my son. And he said, Here I am. And Eli said, What was it that he told you? Do not hide it from me. May God do so to you and more also if you hide anything from me of all that he told you. So Samuel told him everything and hid nothing from him. And he said, It is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. And Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him, and let none of his words fall to the ground. And all Israel from Dan to Beersheba knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord. And the Lord appeared again to Sh- at Shiloh, for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. Let us go now to Luke two forty-one through 52 which is our sermon text for today. Luke 2.41 Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of Passover. 
And when he, that is Jesus, was twelve years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem, searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting amongst the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. This now the reading of God's most holy word. May he add his blessing to the preaching of it this morning. The passage that is before us today brings this opening section of Luke's gospel to a close. From Luke 1.5 through to the end of chapter 2, Luke tells us about the things that were accomplished immediately before, during, and after the birth of Christ, and before His public ministry began. As you know, Jesus began His public ministry at about the age of 30, And it is in chapter 3 that Luke tells us about the beginning of Jesus' public ministry. So then, Luke 1.5 through 2.52 covers about a 30-year span of time. And in fact, most of what is said here in this section is about Jesus' conception, birth, and infancy. Here in this passage that is before us today, we are told about something that happened when Jesus was 12 years old. I think the story is very intriguing. At first glance, it almost seems like a strange story. It it raises the question, was Jesus disobedient to his parents? Was he cruel to them when he disappeared from their sight by staying behind at the temple without their knowledge, leading them to frantically search for him for three days? I suppose the question could be asked, why did Luke bother to include this story given the questions that it raises. Did he need filler material? Is that why Luke included this story in his gospel? Did he think to himself, you know, it would be nice to have something about Jesus' early adulthood. I guess I'll include this little tidbit in my gospel. Of course, I think that is not the reason. In fact, the closer we look at this story, the more we will appreciate its profoundness. It is an intriguing story, and I think it reveals to us a great deal about Jesus Christ, His person, and His work. I would like to suggest to you that this story provides us with far more than an insignificant glimpse into the early life of Jesus the Messiah. Actually, it provides us with great insight concerning the person of Christ and the way in which He came to understand His God-given messianic mission. The story is somewhat shocking. 
It was shocking to Joseph and Mary as they lived it, as they experienced it. Verse 48 says that they were astonished. And it is shocking to us as we read it. We wonder, why would Jesus do such a thing? But I think the story is meant to be shocking. And being shocked by it, we are not to flee from it. But rather we are to contemplate all the more carefully its significance. Like Mary... We are to treasure all these things in our hearts, see Luke 2.51. So then, what do we learn from this story? While it is possible to draw applications from this text for married people, based upon the activities of Joseph and Mary, saying, look at how devout they were as a couple. They journeyed to Jerusalem every year to celebrate the Passover, Married couples, therefore, ought to be devout as they were. And while it is possible to draw application for young people from the life of Jesus, saying, look at how much Jesus loved the temple. Look at how much He loved the Scriptures and the pursuit of wisdom, even as a 12-year-old boy. Young people, therefore, you should love God's temple, that is to say, the church. You should love the Scriptures. You should pursue Wisdom, even from a young age. And while it is possible to draw application for fathers and mothers from the actions of Joseph and Mary, saying, look at how deeply concerned they were for the physical and spiritual well-being of their child. They took him to Jerusalem and to the temple year after year to celebrate the Passover. And when they found him missing, they were deeply concerned. Parents, You should love your children as Joseph and Mary loved Jesus. Provide for them and seek to protect them as much as it is within your reasonable power to do so. And bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Bring them to the temple to worship. Bring them into the presence of God as the church assembles. Now, as good and true as those applications are, this is not what this text is about. This text, brothers and sisters, is about Jesus. It reveals to us who he understood himself to be and what he knew his mission was, even at the young age of 12. This text is about Jesus and the way in which he, according to his human nature, came to perceive his utterly unique relation to God the Father and his unique mission as the Lord's Messiah. Before we divide, uh, dive into the particulars of this text, I would like you to notice three things about it that show that this is the meaning. The applications that I suggested to you are possible applications, I suppose. They are certainly true applications, but there are a few things about this text that show that this is the meaning. This text is about Jesus his awareness at the age of 12 of his unique relation to the Father and of his messianic mission. Note one, notice that this text is bracketed with two statements regarding Jesus' human growth in stature and wisdom. Look with me at Luke 2.40. There we are told that Jesus returned home with his parents after his dedication at the temple as an infant, and he grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. And now look at the very last verse of our text for today, Luke 2.52. It says, And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. 
So then, this story about Jesus' activity in the temple in Jerusalem at the age of 12 begins and ends with statements about Jesus' human growth. He grew in stature. This means that he grew physically, as all boys and, and girls do. And he also grew in wisdom. This means that his knowledge and understanding of the truth increased. So Jesus grew in stature and wisdom. Our text for today is bracketed by these statements so that we might properly understand how to interpret the story itself. Two, I do not want you to forget about the similarities between the beginning of Luke's gospel and the beginning of the Old Testament book, 1 Samuel. I will not repeat all the points that I made about the similarities in the previous sermon. I trust that you're able to remember the points of contact between the stories of the miraculous conception of Samuel and Jesus, the songs that their mothers, Hannah and Mary, sang, and the statements that were made regarding the development of the boys. After Samuel was left to be raised at the temple under the care of Eli, it was said of him, and the boy Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. And then again in 1 Samuel 2.26, we read, Now the boy Samuel continued to grow both in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with man. Uh, that should sound very familiar to you. We just read such a statement in Luke chapter 2. Uh, those, who knew, those who know the Old Testament scriptures will immediately think of these statements when they read what Luke wrote concerning Jesus in 2.40 and in 52, and Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. These connections were made in the previous sermon, and the point was this. Luke wants us to make a connection between the life of Samuel and Jesus. Samuel was a prophet who ministered in the temple amongst the priests and was called to anoint kings. Jesus is greater. He is the Messiah, the great prophet, priest, and king of God's people. Samuel foreshadowed Jesus, therefore. Jesus is the fulfillment of that foreshadowing that took place in the life of Samuel. But I think there is one more connection to make between Samuel and Jesus. It involves the two passages that were read at the start of the sermon, and I do apologize for the confusion about 1 Samuel 1, 1 Samuel 3 rather. In 1 Samuel 3, we read of the experience that Samuel had as a boy while in the temple in Jerusalem. Make the connection here. In 1 Samuel 3, we heard about an experience that Samuel had as a boy, as he was in the temple in Jerusalem. He was sleeping in the temple, and God called out to him three times in a row. It was the first time that the prophet Samuel had heard the voice of the Lord, so he did not recognize it. The first two times that he heard the voice, he thought it was Eli. When Samuel came to Eli the third time, Eli realized what was going on, and so he instructed the boy to say, "'Speak, Lord, for your servant hears.'" the next time the Lord called out to him. And so he did. And notice this. From that day forward, Samuel knew himself to be a prophet of God. And so did Eli and others who received word about all of this. 1 Samuel 3, 19-20 says, And Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him, and let none of his words fall to the ground. And all Israel from Dan to Beersheba knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord. 
The story that is before us today regarding the 12-year-old Jesus in the temple in Jerusalem mirrors this story about Samuel. Here, Jesus demonstrates that he understands his unique relationship to God the Father and his special calling as the Lord's Messiah. Samuel, as a boy ministering in the temple, heard the voice of the Lord, and he came to realize his special calling, his relationship to God. He was called to be a prophet of Old Covenant Israel. But the story here in Luke chapter 2 helps us to see that at the age of 12, Jesus comprehended his unique relationship, his utterly unique relationship to God the Father, and his calling as the Lord's Messiah. And not only does he demonstrate his understanding, but others see it too, as we will see. This leads us now to the third general observation about this text. It is here in this passage that we find the earliest recorded words spoken by Jesus. So far in Luke's gospel, others have said things about Jesus. Men, women, and angels have testified powerfully concerning him, insisting that he is the Messiah promised from the days of Adam onward, the Savior of the world. But here in this passage, we hear the words of Jesus for the very first time. What he says is very important, for it reveals his understanding of his unique relation to the Father and his God-ordained mission. Look with me at Luke 2.49. Here are the earliest recorded words of Jesus, our Savior. And Jesus said to Joseph and Mary, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my Father's house? The New King James Version translates the Greek in this way. Why did you seek me? Did you not know that I must be about my Father's business? Both translations are possible and valid, but I do think that the New King James Version better captures the meaning. The point is this. Jesus, at the age of 12, knew that he had an utterly unique relation to God the Father and that his life was to be devoted to his father's business. He was to be about his father's work, his father's built business, that is to say, the building up of his father's house or kingdom. I do hope that these three general observations have convinced you that the point of this story is not to encourage a God-centered marriage the pursuit of wisdom from a young age, or godly parenting, as true and wonderful as those applications are, they are not the point of the text. This text is about Jesus. It is about his person and his work. And so let us take a little closer look at the text to glean from it. We will do so under two headings. First, the person of Christ. Second, the work of Christ. First, let us consider the person of Christ and ask the question, who is he? And two things must be said. He is the eternally begotten Son of God the Father, and we must also say, he is the Son of Mary. That Jesus knew himself to be the Son of God the Father is seen in verse 49. I want you to consider the story. Jesus was missing. He was not with the traveling party heading back from Jerusalem to Nazareth after the feast of Pentecost or excuse me the feast of Passover ended Joseph and Mary searched frantically for him for 3 days so 
I want you to imagine what this would be like. Uh, they were so very scared. Their son was missing. And when they found him in the temple, they asked him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. Your father and I, Mary says, have been searching for you in great distress. And in response to this, Jesus said, Why did you seek me? Did you not know that I must be about my father's business? Some have wondered if Jesus was disrespectful to his parents at this moment. And the answer must be, certainly not, for he was without sin all the days of his life. Hebrews 4.15 says this and many other texts. In fact, it was Joseph and Mary who were in the wrong here. Consider a few things about that. One, Jesus was 12. In our culture, 12-year-olds are considered to be children still. But in the Jewish culture, the age of 12 marked a transition into adulthood. Though it might seem strange to us that a 12-year-old would be given the freedom to linger in the temple in this way, it should have been granted to Jesus given his age and maturity. It seems that Joseph and Mary were being overly protective of their child. Two, the questions that Jesus asked of Joseph and Mary were not disrespectful questions, but honest. Why did you seek me? And did you not know? In other words, Jesus' perspective was that they should have known and that they should not have been so troubled by his lingering in Jerusalem at the temple. Though the text does not say it, one has to wonder if conversations were not had between Jesus, Joseph, and Mary before this event. Perhaps Jesus had communicated to them his knowledge concerning his calling and had indicated that he would be in his father's house and about his father's business in a pronounced way during this trip to Jerusalem. Of course, that is all speculation. But the thing that is clear is this. Jesus thought that Joseph and Mary were in the wrong. They should have known and they should not have been searching frantically for him. His questions were honest questions, and they reveal his perspective. Three, even if no specific conversations were had between Jesus, Joseph, and Mary concerning his awareness of his messianic mission and his plans to linger in Jerusalem and in the temple, Joseph and Mary should have known, based upon what was revealed to them at the time of Jesus' birth, I do not need to remind you of everything that was revealed to Joseph and Mary concerning Jesus at the time of his birth, for we have considered these things carefully in previous sermons. Joseph and Mary should have not panicked. They should have walked by faith, knowing that the Lord would certainly preserve his Messiah, this child that had been entrusted to them. So I want you to think about this with me for just a moment. From a merely human and unbelieving perspective, I suppose that Joseph and Mary's searching for Jesus in great distress, as it is said in verse 58, 48, rather, was reasonable. Their child was missing. They were far from home. And most parents can sympathize with Joseph and Mary, for they have likely experienced the feeling of panic that one feels when it is perceived that their child is missing or in some danger. I remember a an episode in our life where when Kalia was little, right, and we had moved into a new house 
she just vanished. We didn't know where she was. She decided to go play with one of the neighbors, and they decided to let her into their home. They ended up being great neighbors and dear friends to our children for many years, but we did not know where she was, and it was a time of panic. Where, where is our child? And so from a purely human perspective, I think we can sympathize with Joseph and Mary. Uh, I think we could also further sympathize with them reasoning in this way. They were entrusted with the, the responsibility of raising not a, a normal child, but the Lord's anointed one. And so what must they have thought? We have, we have lost the Messiah. We have lost the Christ. We've been called to raise this this anointed one of God, and yet we have lost him. They must have felt great pressure. They must have felt that this was a very serious responsibility and even a burden, and, and, and perhaps they did feel all of this. But if they knew all of this, I think we must admit from a faith perspective that it was in fact unreasonable and rooted in unbelief for them to panic as they did. Joseph and Mary were called to be responsible parents, yes, they were called to do everything in their power to feed Jesus, to protect Him, and to bring Him up in the Lord. But when it came to things beyond their control, when it came to Jesus' survival into adulthood, so that He might accomplish the purposes that God ordained for Him before the creation of the heavens and earth, that was to be left to God, who is sovereign over all things. Do you understand what I'm saying here, brothers and sisters? From a human and unbelieving perspective, I suppose we might look at Mary and Joseph's response and say, yeah, we get it. We would have done the same. They must have felt great pressure. But from a faith perspective, as we consider the sovereignty of God and His purposes for this Messiah, I think we would have to say, Joseph and Mary, you had a lapse in faith here. You panicked and you should not have panicked. You should have trusted the Lord that He would preserve this child. You should have trusted the Lord that He would preserve the Messiah so that He might accomplish God's purposes for Him. In fact, if there is an application to be drawn from this text for parents on this Mother's Day, I think it would be this. Parents, be responsible. Raise your children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Do your best to feed them well, to clothe them, and to provide them with shelter so that they might grow in stature. And teach them well too. Teach them common things. And teach them spiritual things. Give them the scriptures. Bring them faithfully into the temple of God, that is to say, into the midst of the church gathered on the Lord's day, so that they might worship and grow in wisdom. Yes, you must be faithful, but be very careful to not hinder them with your fearful disbelief. Entrust them to the Lord, and then walk by faith, knowing that God will accomplish all of His purposes. There are many things that are beyond our control, brothers and sisters. We must be responsible to do what God has called us to do, trusting Him in all things, and especially in those things which are outside our sphere of responsibility. And I think that all parents must learn this. They must learn this, this balance between responsibility and trusting in the sovereignty of God. And really it is not a balance that must be struck as much as it is a way of life. We must know what we are responsible for. We must be diligent to do what God has called us to do. And in all things, those things that are within our sphere of responsibility and especially those things that are outside of it, we must entrust ourselves to God Almighty knowing that He will accomplish all of His purposes. The crucial thing to notice about our text is that Mary 
refers to Joseph as Jesus' father. And of course, Joseph was Jesus' father in an earthly and adoptive sense. But Jesus shows here that he knows that God is his father. He was in his father's house, the temple, and he knew that he was to be about his father's business. There is a sense in which Jesus sets Mary and Joseph straight. They should not have panicked. They should have been mindful of God's calling upon Jesus. They should have entrusted themselves to God Almighty. And they should have known that God is Jesus' Father in an utterly unique way. And so this whole story provides Jesus with an opportunity to, in a sense, set Joseph and Mary straight and to reveal to us and to all who have ever encountered this story what he knew concerning himself even at the young age of 12. Yes, God is the Father of all in this sense. He is the Creator of all. And yes, God is the Father of all who have faith in Christ in a special way, for in Christ we are forgiven, justified, reconciled to God, and adopted as His beloved children, though we were by nature children of wrath because of sin. But Jesus has God as Father in an utterly unique way, as John 3.16 says, that Christ is the only begotten Son of God. Now, time will not allow us to dive deeply into the doctrine of the person of Christ now, but we have done this before, brothers and sisters. Not long ago in a Sunday school class, we considered the doctrine of Christ, and in it we learned uh, to answer the question, who is Jesus in this way? He is the eternally begotten Son of the Father, the second person of the triune God incarnate. The person of Christ is the person or subsistence of God the Son. In Christ, the person of the eternal Son of God assumed or took to himself a human nature, that is to say, a human body and a human soul. But let me ask you this, who is the person, that is to say, the subject that acts through the human and divine natures of Jesus? Who is Christ? Who is the person of Christ? We must confess that the person of Christ is the person of the eternally begotten Son of God. That is who Jesus is. That is the person who is acting through the divine and human natures of Christ, the person of the Son. This is what John, the Apostle, famously teaches in the opening of his Gospel. Instead of using the name Son, he uses the name Word, but the meaning is the same. Listen to what John says, "...in the beginning was the Word." We might say son. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. What is John doing here? He's talking about the second person of the triune God, using the term Word, saying that He was in the beginning, He was with God, He he, he, he is God. He was God. All things were made through Him. He is not a creature. He is the creator of all things. God the Father created through the Son and by the Holy Spirit. John is orienting our minds to these basic doctrines here. But then in verse 14 of chapter 1, he says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, 
and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. This is the doctrine of the Incarnation. It is the person of the eternal Son of God, the second person of the triune God, who took to Himself a true human nature, body and soul. You see, it was the person of the Word, or Son, who took to Himself a human nature, body and soul. It was not the person of the Father, nor was it the person of the Spirit, nor was it the divine nature that became incarnate, but it was the person of the Son that became incarnate. The very same truth that John communicates in this didactic way, in John chapter 1, Luke communicates in his narrative. Remember what the angel said to Mary when he appeared to her and announced to her that she would conceive miraculously. He said to her, And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. He will be called the Son of the Most High, the angel Gabriel said to her. And when the angel explained how these things would happen, given that Mary was a virgin, he said, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. This is what this child will be called. He will be called the Son of God. He will not be brought into this world through the ordinary means of procreation. He will not be the son of Joseph, except in an adoptive sense. He will not be the son of Joseph. This child will be conceived miraculously by the power of the Holy Spirit. This will be the very Son of God incarnate. The point is this. Though Joseph was faithful to serve as Jesus' earthly father by adopting him as his own, Jesus' only true father was and is God the Father in heaven. The same father who eternally begets the person of the Son did also miraculously conceive the human body and soul of Jesus by the Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary, so that the person of the Son might become incarnate so that He might experience a truly human life for us and accomplish our salvation by living a sinless life and dying in the place of humans. When Jesus uttered these words at the age of 12, Did you not know that I must be in my Father's house? He showed that He was aware of His utterly unique relation to God the Father. We are invited to call God Father as sons and daughters who've been forgiven and adopted through faith in Christ the Son. But we confess that Jesus is the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten not made, of the same essence of the Father. Here I am quoting a portion of the Nicene Creed. Would you hear it again? This is what we confess. We confess that Jesus is the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages, before creation, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of the same essence of the Father. These are faithful words by which we confess our doctrine of Christ. Who is Jesus? 
He is the Son of God. But notice this, He is also the Son of Mary. And here I am simply drawing your attention to His true humanity, which He derived from her. The person of the eternal Son of God was, in fact, born of woman. As Paul says, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. Consider the way in which our passage reveals the true humanity of Christ. Jesus was born of Mary, and then He was raised by Joseph and Mary. And so I want you to think of it, the one through whom Mary and Joseph were created was in His incarnation born of Mary, and raised by Joseph also. It's a great mystery. It's marvelous to consider. Jesus submitted himself to Mary and Joseph. The text says so, that after this episode that we're now considering, he went home with them to Nazareth, and he remained in submission to them. Think of it. The eternal Son of God, through whom all things have been made, humbled himself, became incarnate, and submitted himself to human parents, Joseph and Mary. Think of what it would have been like to be Mary, and think of what it would have been like to be Joseph, to have this responsibility to raise this child that they knew was far greater than them. Being greater than them, as high as God is greater than all of His creation, uh, He submitted himself to, them, himself to them in this human way. It's a marvelous mystery. And Jesus, the eternal Son of God incarnate, uh, consider this, He grew physically, he grew mentally. He grew emotionally. He grew spiritually. Does it sound strange for me to say that? I think it's okay if it sounds a little strange. It is a high mystery, but it is true. Jesus, the Son of God incarnate, increased in knowledge and wisdom. The eternal Son, or Word of God, learned to speak. Huh. The eternal Word of God learned to speak. He learned to count. He learned to reason. The eternal Son, or Word of God, learned the Holy Scriptures, the very Scriptures that He inspired. <laughs> Think about that for a moment. The eternal Son, or Word of God, also came to, a, under, to an understanding of His own messianic mission. I do understand full well that these statements sound almost blasphemous, but they are not. They're the true and, and clear teaching of Holy Scripture. Here we have this repeated emphasis in Luke's Gospel that he grew in stature and wisdom. Our text is bracketed by these statements. And how can it be that God the Son could possibly increase in wisdom in this way? How could it be? The answer is that he did it, not according to his divine nature, which is eternal, unchanging and perfect in every way, but according to the human nature He assumed. Can the eternal Son of God increase in wisdom according to His divine nature? Not at all. For God is eternal. He is unchanging. Nothing can be added to Him. He knows all things. He is the source of all wisdom. But we are told that Jesus did increase in wisdom. How so? Again I say, only according to the human nature which He took to Himself. Jesus is truly human, yet without sin. 
He has a true human body, a body that grew, a body that bled. And he has a true human soul. This means that he has a human mind. This means that he has a human will. He has human affections. He has a true human soul, a human mind, one that increased in knowledge, a human will through which he offered up perfect and perpetual obedience to the Father, and human affections by which he is purely drawn to that which is good and repulsed by all that is evil. The person of Christ is the person of the eternal Son. And in the incarnation, the eternal Son experienced a truly human existence. Jerome, who lived in the late 4th century and early 5th century AD, wrote concerning this high mystery, saying, How does he who is wisdom receive understanding? Jesus advanced in wisdom and age and grace before God and men. This means not so much that the Son was instructed by the Father, but that his human nature was instructed by his own divinity. There is the seer's prophecy, says Jerome, of him who blossomed from the root of Jesse. The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, a spirit of wisdom and understanding. I do love the way that Jerome puts this. It was not so much that the Son was instructed by the Father, but rather that the human nature of Christ, which he assumed in time, was instructed according to his, by his divine nature. That is what is going on here. It is a marvelous mystery, but it is, it is what we must confess if we are to remain orthodox concerning our doctrine of Christ. The point is this. Jesus is truly the Son of God, and He is the Son of Mary. He is fully divine, and He is fully human. And we see clearly in the passage that is before us today these truths. The writer of Hebrews states it like this, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, He Himself, that is Christ our Savior, likewise partook of the same things, that through death He might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery, for surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. What, what is the point that the writer of the book of Hebrews is making here? He is saying that in order for for, for this Messiah to save human sinners like you and me, he had to be a human, truly so. He had to partake of, of everything that we are, body and soul. He had to have a true human body if he was to save those who have a true human body. And he, he had to have a true human soul as well. He had to have a human mind, will and affections. It is a great mystery, but we see it put on display here in the passage that is before us. Jesus Christ is God. Jesus Christ is man. He has the full divine nature and also a true human nature. He is the person of the Son, the person of the eternal Son incarnate. We have considered what this text reveals concerning the person of Christ. Who did Jesus understand himself to be? He understood himself to be the Son of Mary and the Son of God. Now let us briefly consider the work of Christ what did he understand his mission to be? 
Well, the words of Christ in verse 49 are again our focus. He said to his parents once they found him, that is Joseph, his adopted father, and Mary, his mother, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? That is to say, about my father's business. As I've said, both translations are valid. The Greek word that is translated as house by the ESV and business by the NKJV can mean both things. If it is said that a servant manages his master's house, if it is said that a servant manages his master's house, what does that mean except that he manages his master's business or affairs? That is the meaning of this word in this context. And I think that is what Jesus meant. Joseph and Mary found uh, Jesus in God's house, that is to say in the temple. And when they found him, he said, Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? That is to say, I must be all about my father's business. Jesus understood, even at the young age of 12, that he had a special mission to accomplish. God the Father had determined to accomplish something, and he would be the one through whom it would be accomplished. He knew that he needed to be about his father's business in the whole of his life. And what was that business? What was that business that he was to be about? What was the work that Jesus was to do? Well, if we were to only focus on Luke 2.49, we would not know, because Jesus does not elaborate. But if we back up from this verse just a little bit, all becomes clear. Indeed, the things that are said prior to this in Luke's Gospel make it crystal clear what the mission of Jesus was by pointing us to the Old Testament Scriptures. He was to be about the Father's business or work in this sense. He was to be the Messiah that God had promised from long ago. And he was to do the work of the Messiah. Notice where Jesus was when he uttered these words. Do you not know that I must be about my Father's business? He was in the temple. His work was to fulfill the symbolism of the temple and to earn that which the temple signified, namely the new heavens and earth. This was his mission. And notice, when Jesus uttered these words, did you not know that I must be about my father's business? It was immediately after he had celebrated the Passover with his family. His work was to fulfill the symbolism of the Passover by accomplishing the redemption for his people, not from Egypt, but from sin, the domain of Satan and the power of death by his shed blood. Are you following with me now? Where was he? In the temple. His work was to fulfill everything that the temple signified. What had he just done with his parents? They celebrated the Passover feast. And his work was to offer himself up as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. In fulfillment, the Passover, to earn redemption of a much greater kind than what Israel experienced in their redemption from Egypt. And notice what Jesus was doing when Joseph and Mary found him as he uttered the words, Did you not know that I must be about my father's business? He was sitting among the teachers in the temple. He was listening to them and he was asking them questions. In other words, he was discussing the Holy Scriptures with them. And we are told that all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. Jesus' work was to accomplish all that was said concerning him in the law, 
the prophets and the Psalms. Joseph and Mary knew this, for they themselves knew the Old Testament scriptures, and they had heard others testify concerning these things at the time of Jesus' birth, as recorded for us in Luke 1 5 through 2 38. So, what was the Father's business that Jesus was to be about? Well, there are so many ways to say this. We may say, as the Messiah, he was to earn salvation for God's elect. He was to redeem them from sin and misery by accomplishing a second and greater exodus. He was to establish an everlasting kingdom. He was to build God's eternal temple. This was the mission of the Messiah, and Jesus knew it. Joseph and Mary knew it too, but they were still struggling to comprehend how these things would be accomplished, and who could blame them really. In verse 50, we read, And they did not understand the saying that Jesus spoke to them, and he went down with them, and came to Nazareth, and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart, and Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Before we conclude, I would like to suggest to you that there is one more way in which the mission of the Son is revealed in this story, and that is through symbolism or foreshadowing. How do we know what the mission of the Son was? Well, we can pay attention to the temple in which Jesus sat. We can pay attention to the Passover feast that He just celebrated. We can look at the entire Old Testament and see that the mission of the Messiah was outlined there. And yes, indeed, it is true, Jesus came in fulfillment to all of those things. But I think there is one more thing going on here. The mission or work of Christ is presented to us by way of symbolism or foreshadowing. Do you remember what that old man Simeon said to Mary when he gave praise to God for the baby Jesus regarding what she would experience as a mother? Do you remember what he said to her in Luke 2.34? Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. When Jesus was twelve, I do believe that Mary and Joseph received a foretaste of this heart-piercing sorrow. Her beloved son was lost from her sight. For how long was he lost? Three days. Isn't that interesting? Three days. And then he appeared again. They found him on the third day. And where was he found except in the temple of God? I am saying that this event here anticipated the sorrow that Mary would experience later in life when her beloved son would be taken away from her sight for three days by his death and burial. But on the third day, she would see him again. And where would he ascend to except into the heavenly holy of holies, into the very presence of the glory of God, of which the holy of holies in the earthly temple is a sign. When Christ rose from the grave on the third day and appeared to his disciples, his mother Mary included, he very well could have said to them these words, the very words of Luke 
2.49, which we have repeated many times in this sermon. When he rose from the dead and appeared to his disciples, he could have said this to them, Why did you seek me? Did you not know that I must be about my Father's business? Indeed, that is what Jesus was about when he died. His body was buried, and his soul descended to Hades. He was about his Father's business. He was about proclaiming victory to those who were captive in that time. I'm not saying that he said these words exactly, but he could have. Why do you seek me? Did you not know that I must be about my father's business? Why were you so troubled during these three days? Why were you so bothered? Why were your souls so anxious? Did you not know that I must be about my father's business? In fact, things like this were said when Jesus rose from the grave and appeared to his disciples. In Luke 24, the very end of this same gospel that we are considering, we are told of of women going to the tomb of Jesus. When they got there, the stone was rolled away and angels appeared to them. And as they were frightened, they bowed their faces to the ground. The men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified on the third day. So they are pressed with the question, Why do you seek the living among the dead? And when Christ appeared to two of his disciples on the road to Emmaus, he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So again, another question is pressed to these disciples who were sorrowful. They were mourning Jesus' law. Where is he? Was it not necessary, he says. And a bit later he appeared to his disciples in Jerusalem. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your heart? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. Why do you seek the living among the dead? Was it not necessary? Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your heart? The questions are not identical to the one that Jesus posed to Joseph and Mary after he was found in the temple being lost from their sight and found on the third day. To them he said, Why do you seek me? Did you not know that I must be about my father's business? The questions are not identical, but they are very similar. They are all meant to encourage faith, aren't they? Faith in the Word of God, faith in the promises of God, faith in what God had revealed concerning the Christ, and faith in Christ Himself. Brothers and sisters, Luke wrote so that we would have certainty concerning Jesus the Messiah. I pray that your certainty would increase as we study this gospel. I pray that you are even now growing more and more sure that Jesus of Nazareth is the Savior who was promised by God from long ago. And I pray that your love and gratitude for Him would increase as well. This will, of course, result in greater obedience to Him for those who love Him will long to keep His commandments. John 14, 15. Lastly, it may be that there are some in our midst who have not yet believed upon Christ. I pray that God, through the preaching of His Word and by the working of the Holy Spirit, would draw you to faith in Jesus the Messiah. For there is salvation in no other name, says Acts 4.12. 
I pray that you would be convinced in the mind that He is the Savior that God has provided and that you are indeed in need of Him. And more than this, I pray that you would trust in Him in the heart and honor Him as Lord because, as Paul says in Romans 10.9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. Let us bow together for prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for Christ crucified and risen for us. On behalf of those who have faith in Christ, I say, O Lord, thank you for this gift of faith. We indeed confess that he is the Messiah, the Savior of all who trust in him. I pray, O God, that you would strengthen our faith. May we see him as the one who did indeed go missing for three days, but on the third day rose again for our salvation. May we know for certain that he is able to save because he was no mere man. He is indeed the eternal Son of God come in the flesh. He is able to save because of who he is. And may we see also that he is able to save because he assumed a human nature like ours, body and soul. Oh God, we thank you for the way in which you sent the Son to assume this human nature so that in Christ we might be lifted up and exalted to the place for which you intend for us, that is, into your very presence and into glory. May we cling to Christ more strongly. May we love him more deeply. May we serve him more faithfully all the days of our life. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen.